hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> oh, Hello, and welcome to episode 351 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host. Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year young adult cancer survivor, broadcasting right now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. My fabulous co-founder and co-host, Kenny Kane, is unavailable this evening in an undisclosed bunker in Bushwick, Brooklyn, but if he were here, he would be welcoming all of our first time and returning listeners never miss a single podcast by subscribing for the newsletter and joining the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It is now okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so got cancer? Under 40 sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. On this episode, part two, we never really had a part two of anything, but part two of our Young Adult Lung Cancer special, we're going to be speaking with Barbara Gitlitz, who is the principal investigator of the Bonaje Adario Lung Cancer Research Project, uh, Sandy, uh, I think is Yogeri, and uh, Jeff Julian about the International Genomics of Young Adult Lung Cancer and their clinical trials. Survivor Spotlight on Vice President of Support and Survivorship, returning champion, Katie Brown. And with that, we welcome you to the show. Hello, Mallory. Hello. You're not Kenny. No, I'm not. Thankfully, I suppose. No. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And hello, Sean. Hey. And uh, we're welcoming, this is your coming out party, my friend. We're welcoming our uh, brand new hire, uh, Noel Wimmer, right here in studio. You get the big applause. <laughs> Thank you. So not only is it your first day here, it's your first stupid cancer show I'm just broadcast. I'm thrown in. Now. Yeah, yeah, this is the lion's den and the deep end of the pool with the lions in the pool. <laughs> there are lots of lions in this And deep Sharknado end. stuff happening <laughs> in the atmosphere. Yeah, we're we're really thrilled to uh, to have you on part of the team. Yeah, so the radio show we do this once a week for the last nine years, eight years. Um, yeah, this is the three hundred fifty first broadcast. It's ridiculous to even think that that number comes out of our mouths, but it's a big deal. And uh, you'll hear we got a great show tonight. We've, this is our I just realized this is our first ever two parter broadcast. Oh, it's kind of exciting. It I, had a, kind of, I had a lot of fun splitting things up into two parts. Yeah, no, this it's, time it's, around. it's really good. It's really good. Um, so we had a really fun time yesterday in Philadelphia. I was uh, given the honor of speaking on a panel of some of, some of the most people I envy and I, I've been mentored by uh, about patient voice. Um, and there's a, 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 an agency called Click, Click with a K, Click Health, up in Toronto. And they put together a, a, a they don't want me to say a TED-like event, but there's really nothing else to compare it to. It's a TED-like event. But it was spun on its ear and done even more. Uh, more, um, I mean, you, you didn't have to spend ten thousand dollars to be there. First and foremost, no, no, no. Um, but Bill Clinton was the keynote speaker, 
I got to meet him. I had nothing to say. I just said, help, Mr. President, thank you for being amazing. <laughs> I voted for you the first year I was eligible to vote, which was when you were elected in 1992. He said, well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, he gave a great keynote, too. Is a... Uh... Very inspiring on many levels. He's so good. Yeah, it was. You can't not like the man. I I may have taken a lot of notes while he was talking. <laughs> you do a very good impression. Can you do that again? <laughs> I don't think so. Just do it. Like come, a, on. come on. It was a one-time shot. It was a one-time shot. I'm not gonna I'm gonna mess it up. The like, second. Like no. See, I lost it. I lost <laughs> that it. Was really. No. That's not like California surfer. Where, where <laughs> did know. I go? I don't know. Uh, but it, anyway, so our panel, the audience was. Um, C-suite level, like CEO, CFO, COO, executives of the biotech industry. And for those that are not aware, there's the pharma industry, big pharma, and biotech, which is like baby pharma. And these are the companies that build the molecules that big pharma eventually turns into the little pills we take to cure different things and treat different things. So uh, a really fascinating event, to say the least. The speakers were amazing. Um, just if you Google uh, Click Idea Exchange, it's again, Click with a K, Click Idea Exchange, you'll see the press release. It'll take you to the website. But unbelievable. It was a pretty amazing event. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. And, and it was held at the American Museum of Jewish History in Philadelphia. Yes. Which right. is like the mo- most modern museum I've ever seen. Yeah. And it also happened to be right next to the Liberty Bell, which I was pretty excited right. about. Right. I woke up staring at Independence Hall. Like, it was so, it was awesome. It was really cool. Uh, so, special thanks to uh, Click Health for um, in the invitation to participate and to help me, g- give me the ability to assemble the Avengers of my universe to be on this incredible panel. So, thanks to uh, Jane Sarans and Khan, Jack Barrett, uh, Dave Fuhrer, Christine Mizrandino, and uh, Adrian. I'm going to botch her last name all the time. Um, Adrian Boston bombing dancing amazing miracle person. It's that, not an easy last name. No, it's like a- Hayden or something. Never mind. Doesn't matter. I'm at the show. So uh, we actually just finished our very first Get Busy Living Day. This was discussed many years ago as to what could we possibly do to rally the world one day a year. Sean, you have the stage. Yeah, it was an incredible day of coordinated events across the country and celebrating what it is to get busy living in the face of cancer. So on the West Coast, in uh, just outside of Los Angeles in Culver City, we had a comedy night. Uh, some big name uh, comedians and actors like Nick Ross, Roy Wood Jr., Gary Cannon, uh, and Steve Mazon. Uh, apparently it was a laugh laugh fest everyone was just crying laughing the entire time and um they had a good time we had bowling in new york city and phoenix uh, great turnouts at both um and denver had a picnic barbecue so uh, it was a great inaugural year um we definitely see this growing next year and, and years beyond you know got to take the baby steps um and yeah it was it was a success get busy living org. that is correct yes um, and before we kick off the show, something happened today. It actually didn't pass, but it's on the in, on the verge of passing. The first, all right, so we all know that, like, there's a bunch of shit in our cosmetics that we hate, but we use it anyway because, you know, why not? Because that's America. Um, but it turns out that the shit in our cosmetics is actually shit in our cosmetics, and 90% of the stuff in our cosmetics is made of ethyl methyl sulfate something something that's not really good for you. Uh, there's There's been this back and forth with the lobbying and the cosmetics industry around what will it take to all we're not asking you to change your products we just want to know what's in them and the fda should regulate what's in them that's all we ask if you you have the free liberty in this country to buy anything you want and smear it all over your body and if it gives you cancer that's great but we should at least have the right to know what's in the stuff we're smearing on our body so it turns out i'm going to just read uh, the first paragraph here For the first time in more than 75 years, Congress is poised to close the gaping holes in the outdated federal law that allows the use of chemicals linked to cancer in the personal care products that we slather on our children and our bodies every single day. This epic props to the campaign for safe cosmetics. We've had them on the show probably once a year, I think every October for breast cancer which is all smathered with, like, oh, cosmetics for pink cancer and the cure. So, yes, super kudos. It's called the Personal Care Products 
Safety Act. That's the Personal Care Products Safety Act. And this ties into everything I believe in. It's not about um, that we get cancer as much as to why we get cancer. Clearly, this is part of environment. So kudos. Again, once more, if you want to Google it, the Personal Care Products Safety Act. Amazing stuff. Thank you, America. And let's get on with our show. In our Survivor Spotlight tonight, Katie Brown, 20-year cancer survivor, uh, worked in nonprofit to patient advocacy for the last 13 years. She's currently the Vice President of Support and Survivorship Programs for Longevity. She's a certified oncology patient navigator and the Foundation's social media strategist. Please welcome back, I think for the fourth time, Katie Brown from Longevity. Katie. We are so psyched to have you back, and, and I, I don't know if you heard the top of the show, but uh, we've never done a part two of the Stupid Cancer Show, so starting off last week with Bonnie and all their great work, and now tying it into a part two. Um, I had, uh, just coincidentally, before we get to your story, uh, this young adult lung cancer thing, I don't know what's happening, but there's been so much chatter about it so recently, and even just today I was talking with uh, a potential partner uh, in the drug industry about what it means to get involved with young adult lung cancer or what I just call like hashtag young lung, which is what I like what they were saying. And it, it just blows my mind. So you, we, we're both 20 years now. So, I, you know, kudos to Clinton for being president when, when we were diagnosed, but, right. you know, but uh, let, let's go through that because a young adults cancer period, terrible um, lung cancer. <laughs> Come on, really? Let, let's let's go through that. Right. So I think that we're just, you know, if you think back to when we were diagnosed, there wasn't, you know, the, the internets weren't the same, you know, if, if there was anything. There was no Google. We didn't have the information or the education that we have now. So now that there are uh, more channels for folks to become connected, there's greater advocacy opportunities. everybody's self-published, so you can have a blog and you can talk about what you're going through. Um, I think that young adults who are being diagnosed with lung cancer are starting to connect with each other. They're starting to connect with the media. They're starting to share their stories. And it really puts a face on this disease that it can happen to anyone. You know, this is not your great-grandfather's disease. This is a disease that can happen to anyone that breathes. So um, now that there's, there's more awareness that young people can get lung cancer, it's time for us to step up and do something about it. It's way past time for us to do something about it. But now that we know that that the public knows that anybody can get lung cancer, I think um, they're ready to start, you know, taking steps in the right direction. So let's go through your story. And it never really gets old because <laughs> it, even though we get old, our stories never really get old. <laughs> No, we never age. <laughs> so you're a 20-year cancer survivor. You were diagnosed at the age of two, right? So you're 22 yes. now? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So <laughs> when I, yeah, right, right? Um, yes, I like that story. No, really, I was diagnosed with cancer at a very early stage. I had cervical cancer. My cancer has an early detection test. So at 22, even though I was completely isolated and, and I felt, you know, not normal, I tried to be. And um, several years later, I went through that process on my own. I I have a lot of side effects. I have a lot of issues from that experience. But several years later, eight, nine years later, my dad was diagnosed with, with, my dad was diagnosed with something. And it was in my mind that we had caught it early and that he would be able to get treatment and he would be fine. I had no idea that there was, even though he got a physical every year, that there was no early detection test for lung cancer. I had no idea that, you know, he, at diagnosis, even though he didn't feel sick, he had four months to live and he died 11 months and 21 days later. And so really that just sort of being stunned with that, with his diagnosis, not having any resources, not having any support, really kicked kicked me into gear. And that's where my story started. I never say it started with my own cancer. I said it started with my dad's cancer. And um, it's really been a fantastic, strange, awful, wonderful 13 years. And we probably go back a very long time because we met at Liz Strong 
and uh, it's it's been a journey, and it's been great just sort of supporting each other. But that's how I got into lung cancer advocacy, and that's sort of my mission today. Right. It's kind of like, I mean, cancer isn't just cancer, and we try to, you know, you've been part of the Young Adult Universe for a very long time. We met in, like, at the Livestrong Summit, I think, or the Alliance meeting, right. like, forever yeah. ago, a thousand years ago. Yeah. And, you know, young adults. When we were two. <laughs> when we were two, 20 years ago, yes. So the um, uh, the issue of young adult cancer isn't that we're any more or less better or, or special or worse than pediatrics and older Americans. It's just it's very different. And well, the, it is, and it, and it follows you for a very long time. Yes. Um, it's just, it, it's one of these things that just keep, keeps giving back. I'm very, you know, I, I can be um, sarcastic about the fact that I have liver tumors now, or that, you know, I have neuropathy, or that I have all these things that are happening to me. And it's just in this process that I've tried to ignore from the moment I was diagnosed, but it just keeps coming back. So I think that's what you guys address. Yeah, I mean, someone had summed it up really elegantly. They said, well, stupid cancer tries to make it suck a little less. Right, <laughs> right. Like the things that I couldn't put words to, someone else just so poetically quantifies. is wonderful. But yeah, that, that is the entire point. So to your, to your story, cervical cancer, clearly gynecologic, uh, stigma around that, the stigma around lots of cancers in young, young adults. Um, did, were you, uh, did you have any conversations about fertility? Uh, at the 20 years ago, absolutely not, especially mm -hmm. not at 22. Right. First off, it wasn't anything that I had been prepared to talk about. And you really only talk about at that time, what the doctor talks to you about. Correct. Um, there wasn't this internet, there wasn't Instapeer. Right. There wasn't these, <laughs> there weren't these places where you could go and talk to people and figure out what was going on or to, for, for cervical cancer to meet gun friends. You couldn't do that. And so I absolutely, I didn't talk about those things. So whenever, you know, I was ready to have babies, you know, what, what was wrong with me, what was happening to me. And, and, you know, 20 years later, I have a 17 year old and I have an 11 year old and, and it came to me in different ways, but you know, they're born from my heart and they're mine and, and, right. you know, but it is a hard process. And I think, you know, people diagnosed today have a lot better options and a better quality of life than we had it 20 years ago. Right. And before we get to the, uh, to longevity in the young adult lung cancer universe, th that issue, reproductive health, reproductive rights, reproductive civil liberties, is the one horizontal thread across all cancer organizations in the entire country, if not the entire world, that we have. We didn't ask to get sick, but it shouldn't cost us a home equity line of credit to do surrogacy adoption or IVF, uh, you know, and that's, uh, that is the, the issue at the top of my personal list I mean, it cost me, I actually added it up between banking and freezing about $20,000 over the course of time until I had my kids. And if that had yeah. been, and now I have the benefit of spending a half a million dollars in the economy, raising them through college, <laughs> which is what, thank right. you very much. You know, so, but that is, you know, this whole economic productivity loss models, uh, our finance guy smiling, as I just said. <laughs> so... Let, let's get into longevity. Clearly, I know what you guys do, but for the audience and, again, for part two of our Young Adult Lung Cancer series, let's talk about the origins of this, uh, what it does, why it matters, what makes it different. Well, longevity, what makes longevity different is we were started by lung cancer survivors about 15 years ago. And it's gone through, you know, it, its growth spurts and its changes. And in 2015, Longevity merged with a research organization called Protect Your Lungs. And we got a new president and we got a world-renowned scientific board. And now Longevity is the largest private funder of lung cancer research. Um, we're also the largest provider of support for people impacted by lung cancer. That's that's actually my department, and I'm, I'm really um, proud of that. You know, in my dad's honor, when he was diagnosed, there was no support. So we really, we really have a unique organization in that um, uh, research, education, and support are all just so um, important and are at the forefront of everything that we do. We have unique, one-of-a-kind longevity hope summits um, that we put together, and these are survivorship conferences for people with lung cancer. When we started these, there was no such thing. You know, if, right. you, if you had lung cancer, you would go to, if you were a woman, you'd get a look good, feel good conference. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, support groups, yeah. 
And then for men, it would be all men, maybe you'd go fishing. And so having something specifically for people with lung cancer is pretty amazing. We have our online um, support message board for people with lung cancer and then um, one-to-one mentoring program, which we're very proud to be partners with folks like Emmerman Angels. You know Johnny. We both know Johnny. Yes. Um, Fourth Angel, like uh dozens and dozens of hospitals, whenever they have somebody diagnosed with lung cancer, they'll call us and we'll match them with a support partner. And uh, Emmerman Angel uses us very often as well. And then um, we're talking about young adult cancers. I just got an email from a a world-renowned clinician a couple of weeks ago who had a 16-year-old diagnosed with lung cancer and asked me if I could match her with somebody. And I did, which, you know, it's good we could match her, but oh my gosh, can you imagine 16 with lung cancer? Right. So um, it's it's uh, it's amazing the things that that we're doing and how we've grown just in the last five years. But um, now I, I'm just I'm very pleased that anybody who's diagnosed with lung cancer doesn't have to face it alone. Right. So uh, there's so many directions I could take this conversation. I I I, <laughs> I, I, I want to base the next part around what I learned at this um, this I was at the bio conference yesterday okay. in Philly at a pre-conference event thrown by Click Health. And all the bio board executives were there, and Clinton was the speaker. But he made, amongst his consistently elegant repertoire, he made a wonderful statement that that just encapsulated so much so quickly. And I'm going to botch it, of course, even though I quoted it and tweeted it and everyone tweeted it. It had something to do with uh, the biggest shift, and we touched on this last week with Bonnie, um, the biggest shift he's ever seen in healthcare was the pivot from body parts to genome. Yes, absolutely. So lung cancer is at the center, finally, of a lot of this genomics. There's never been like a lung cancer drug, but now there's a genomic drug that can treat lung cancer. That's a lot of what you guys focus on, correct? That's absolutely a lot of what we focus on. We focus on targeted therapies, immunotherapies, um, those kinds of of drugs. And I didn't go to ASCO this year because I had several colleagues there. Um, but I hear that, you know, the immunotherapy and a lot of these, um, those, those sessions were standing room only, which just, oh my gosh, it gives me, it sounds weird to say that this gives me goosebumps, but those are my rock stars. And, you know, they're, they're putting so much effort and so much time into researching something that teaches your body how to fight this, this cancer. So um, it's it's really another tool in in the toolbox for for people who've been diagnosed with cancer and more treatment options because there haven't been a whole lot of treatment options for for folks with lung cancer. Very exciting. Right. So then we talked about the and we're gonna, but the second half of the show we're going to be talking with them about the actual um, the investigators and how the trial process is working. But access is clearly. I mean, lung cancer is the number one cancer, but. Does that mean that more of them are getting enrolled in trials and the barriers to, to getting enrolled, to even matching or knowing about it or having a conversation about it or being near a place that is doing it, let alone enrolling being, I'm on record saying that enrolling in the trial is the equivalent of five concurrent home equity lines of credit applications? Yeah, no, I agree. And and I've sat on a lot of patient advisory boards with with the folks who are conducting these trials, with the researchers and with the pharmaceutical companies, and there are a lot of barriers. And um, for us, we, we try to um, address the education barrier because a lot of people don't know what clinical trials are. They think that, you know, you're a guinea pig or that you're not getting treatment. And, you know, nine times out of ten you are getting at least standard of care treatment, and people don't know that. Um, they don't – they get treated in local hospitals – um, maybe small town hospitals where maybe that doctor is a general oncologist of all types of cancer and he doesn't know what type of clinical trials are available. So we're working to educate the provider as well. And then, of course, um, you know, the enrollment process. We had a session at our Hope Summit this year about clinical trials, and it was a clinical trial 101 session. And it was, you know, basically what they were. And then we had a case study. We had a man who's, who's doing an, an immunotherapy trial, and he went through the whole process of his application and everything that he went through and how he got from his home to the location where he was getting the clinical trial and the resources for um, hotels to stay because this wasn't close to where he lived. It's a huge process. Your analogy about, you know, the home loans and, and all of that is absolutely correct. And I think that we just have to 
present the information to the provider and teach the provider to talk to the patient and then have resources for the patient to access so that they're, they can benefit from these and that it's not a, a last-ditch effort. It's something that's at the forefront of their minds. I mean, it, it, has anyone really cracked that code? That That's the bigger picture. No one's really I – mean, trial enrollment is, what, 3 to 6% on average in the country – but in pediatrics, it's like 85% because it's mandatory because they're minors and all the parents want their kids to do the best that they can. So, Absolutely. Right. So there's no real way to mandate trials to advance the science of this. And just the word trial itself is the worst word to use. <laughs> Right. Do you want to no, be a I trial? Agree. Yeah. I, I agree. I'm on that boat with you. Um, I think that really we have to agree on the language and we have to agree on how we present the language to the patient. We have to empower patients to want to learn more. We have to put out, um, you know, right now Longevity has webinars and videos that sort of talk about what clinical trials are, how people have benefited from them. I think that's the first step, but, you know, we're, we're talking about people who are online. You know, with lung cancer, um, a lot of our folks are not online. So it's really teaching those medical providers how to have those conversations. Patient navigators are really key. And, you know, I, I work a lot with patient navigators to try to teach them how to navigate someone who's in the whirlwind fog and shock and awe of the lung cancer diagnosis, what a clinical trial is and what it isn't. You know, dispel those myths, bring it down to a real level that people can understand and digest. And so when they're, they're given these options, which unfortunately for lung cancer are not many, you know, they'll, they'll decide to look deeper into clinical trials and um, hopefully benefit from these new drugs that are on the horizon. So let's take the last three minutes because, believe me, you could do an entire show, just you and me, for 30 minutes. <laughs> this, this idea of the navigator isn't a new concept, but it's not terribly common because most of the, I think it's 80% of cancer diagnoses are done in the middle of nowhere America and only 20% yeah. are done at like MD Anderson and similar Massively gigantic, well, you know, huge endowment institutions, NCI cancer centers. A lot of these local uh, clinics are state funded and can't afford a navigator. And the navigator community has clearly proven their value economically, patient outcomes wise. There's no doubt that spending the money on, on payroll to have somebody there improves the health of the entire hospital and the patient experience. What has been your biggest challenge? in seeing this specialty perpetuate further? Well, unfortunately, you know, I'm not in a hospital setting, but I know there are a lot of challenges and barriers in a hospital setting. I know that you have to justify why your job is, you know, why, why there's an, a return on investment on patient navigation, which I think is ridiculous. They have to sit there and document everything to prove that they're worthy of being in um, the hospital. A lot of times, you know, um, hospitals will designate a uh, oncology nurse or a social worker or someone who's already in the hospital and, and, and give them a patient navigator title so that they can do that, but they're not, they may not be specifically trained and they may not be trained for that particular cancer. It may just be a general navigator. So um, what I can speak to is for all of the great organizations that have like a, a breast navigator or a lung navigator, um, they're trained. There's more training now. Um, there's more. There are more meetings like AONN that bring together like-minded professionals and clinicians to talk about the role of a patient navigator and what they do and what they don't do and how they can help to improve outcomes for patients. Um, I think for people with lung cancer, and, and I do agree, a lot of folks are being treated in, in small small um, hospitals, that, and, and a lot of times they've never seen a navigator before. Um, I am an oncology patient navigator. I take phone calls almost, you know, 24-7. <laughs> and so folks will call me and we, and, and, you know, and my team and we with lung cancer, and we will help 
sort of navigate them through the process. If it's someone who's a young adult, you know, we might match them with another young adult. We will we'll tell them about stupid cancer, tell them about Instapeer, we'll tell them about CancerCon, we'll connect them with that community and financial resources and legal resources. And so just letting them know that we're available so that if they don't have one in their hospitals, they can give us a call. Um, they can give Longevity a call and really benefit from um, our expertise. We've been talking with Katie Brown, 20-year cervical cancer survivor working in advocacy for more than 13 years. That sounds so great coming out of the tongue there. <laughs> Vice President of Support and Survivorship at Longevity, online at longevity.org. Katie, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you again. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. Have a great have a great show. Okay, bye. Katie Brown. Bye. All right, Kenny's not here, so I will be doing the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That's events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Uh, Again, I don't have the meetups offhand, but there certainly are a bunch of them, and we just announced OMG East. And OMG West, go to omgsummit.org to learn about saving the dates for those wonderful conferences. Cancer's lonely. We've got a cure for that. We're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app for iOS and Android that brings instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer is lonely. No one should go through cancer alone. Now you can find somebody just like you in the palm of your hands on your iOS or Android device. Check out the Stupid Cancer news feed on Tumblr at stupidcancer.org slash feed. All the articles and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social. Worth your while to subscribe to that one. Cancer's expensive. We're proud to announce cancermademebroke.org. Yes, that is cancermademebroke.org. A national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick and your community wants to help. Visit cancermaybebroke.org or .com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. And finally, it's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and warm with all new products and styles to choose from. Don't forget our skateboard, flip the cancer bird, and a whole bunch of new t-shirts and yoga pants and wonderful stuff. Stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is the Stupid Cancer News. Okay, in our main segment here, part two of the Young Adult Lung Cancer Universe, we're joined by Dr. Barbara Gitlitz. She is the medical oncologist at USC, principal investigator of the genomics of young lung trial and a member of the Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute. Joining her is Sandy Harigi, a 31-year-old world traveler and hiker who also happens to have stage four non-small cell lung cancer and rounding out the trinity here, former USA Swimming National Team athlete, my old job, and currently head coach of Rose Bowl Aquatics, and on the national team coaches list, uh, Jeff Julian uh, has been around water and an athlete all his life. He'll be sharing his story and how he got involved in this this uh, this crazy conversation. Please welcome Jeff Julian, Sandy Hiriki, and Barbara Gitlitz. Hello, guys. Hello. What a tangled web of circus tent we weave. I um I'm really interested. I, I I was mentioning before on on the show we've never done a two-parter of the stupid cancer show, but this is such an an, an extraordinary topic on so many different levels because it ties in with young people and stigma and genomics and uh, and outcomes and hereditary and environmental. There's so many things that weave into this. It's quite fascinating. We could probably have a two-hour uh, conversation. We have thirty minutes, but I know it's going to be phenomenal. Um, but uh, just to pick up immediately from last week, Barbara, let's let's uh, round out the conversation where uh, we were talking about uh, Adario um, and the incredible genomic pathways, and that was a, um, a a metaphor, not not a biologic term, that you guys are sort of really uh, you know groundbreaking. Yeah, well, you know, the, this study is really uh, a one of a kind, and and I think the first of its kind, and. 
at this time, it's it's really gone international on us. The Adaria Lung Cancer Medical Institute um, has done just a, a wonderful job um, uh, funding this study, getting the word out there, and uh, social media, because uh, my institution, University of Southern California, uh, we um, host a, a website um, through the Adaria Lung Cancer Medical Institute, and we have all the um, all the IRB documents and 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 things that people can actually um, participate online. We're bringing the study to people all around the world. They they never have to uh, travel to come and see us. And we are really just seeking to uh, better understand uh, what is driving lung cancer in these people that are uh, less than, than age 40. And uh, that, that is our goal. That is the kind of the, the first step. And we're trying to help people in real time by getting them uh, deep, genomics, deep genomics to try to see if we can help them out um, if they haven't had the type of, uh, of full-spectrum genomics that we're offering. Um, and also we're you know, collecting tissue and blood for research purposes uh, uh, down the line. So that's kind of the study in, in, in a nutshell. I think it thoroughly encapsulates the complete pivot that uh, cancer research has taken in the past couple of years. I was at a conference yesterday. I was talking about this before on the air, uh, and Bill Clinton was the keynote speaker, and we, it was wow. for the bioconference, and it's, that is this industry. It is, and he said something really profound, as he typically always does. He said that the biggest shift he's seen in medicine was the, the pivot from body part to genome, and that is exactly what you guys are doing, and it's commendable. Yes, yes, definitely. You know, and, and lung cancer um, is no longer recognized as, you know, one big, fat, ugly cancer type. It's, you know, it's many different subtypes, and we are seeking to genomically describe what's happening in, in people that are less than age 40 uh, getting lung cancer. These people in the prime of their life, um, the vast, vast majority never smokers. It's just like, you know, what's going on here? And we hope that this will be a catapult to uh, other studies where we uh, then look into the possible underlying causes. Right. And before we get to Sandy and Jeff to tell their stories, uh, this goes back to something I've been talking about that is not a new thing to talk about is it's it's what is happening that is causing our bodies to develop these cancers. That's just an earlier stage that that lung cancer at 22, I had brain cancer at 21. We've had people with breast cancer at 11 years old. What is happening to our bodies at such an early stage of life that is fostering these mutations to happen that didn't happen 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And obviously the elephant room is the environment, the food we're eating, the things we have no control over. Um, and just before we get started, I do want to let you know that something really incredible happened today, that the um, there's a movement called uh, Safe Cosmetics. And they've been lobbying Congress for like a decade to reform the laws that govern uh, toxic oversight of chemicals in our household products and cosmetics, mm -hmm. which have been linked to cancer, which have been linked to diabetes, which have been linked to learning disabilities and birth defects and early onset colon cancer and things like that. They finally got Congress to agree to this law that they're going to pass um, that is going to, for the first time in 75 years, regulate some of the crap that goes into the, some of the crap that we put on our bodies. So... That's at least something we can thank progress for doing, which leads us to, you know, Sandy and Jeff. I don't, it's like everyone's an athlete that gets cancer. I feel like I'm the only guy that didn't get cancer that wasn't an athlete. I was, I was just a slob writing music in college and I got brain cancer. I was not an athlete. So, so. You were working your brain too hard, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I got the, I, I was too, I was working too hard cognitively, exactly, not physically. Uh, but let's let's start with Sandy, 31 year old world traveler, hiker. You know, in the in the peak prime of your life, lung cancer, 29 years old. What were your symptoms? How did you go through that process to get that diagnosis? You know, there was actually. Uh, I, I guess now, the more I talk about it, the more I realized that I had symptoms, but I'd just been ignoring them. Um, you know, the first one was I was short of breath and. Um, I'd lost, lost tons of weight, like 20 pounds or whatnot, but at that time I was just leading a super crazy lifestyle, going to graduate school and nursing school and all sorts of things. So, um, you know, I had an excuse for every symptom, but what ultimately did it was um, for my honeymoon, I'd just gotten married a, a few months before I got diagnosed, but we'd gone um, over to Nepal and in India. Um, we trekked up uh, Everest Base Camp 
And when I came back, uh, you know, a couple of months after that, um, I, I had what I thought to be flu-like symptoms, you know, symptoms I could no longer ignore. And I went to a local urgent care, um, you know, had a, a, a workup and the doctor thought I had, you know, possibly bronchitis or something. Um, that was before I had a chest x-ray. Once I had a chest x-ray, um, I was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Uh, I was, because of the fact that I'd been out of the country to areas where tuberculosis is very common. Um, so I was admitted to a hospital and placed in isolation. Um, my sputum test, or the test that they do to test for tuberculosis, came back negative. Um, and at that time, after, you know, five days in the hospital, they start, the doctor started looking for something else. Um, then I had a CAT scan followed by a lung biopsy which uh, revealed that my diagnosis was lung cancer. So, um, yeah, and then uh, at, once I had the biopsy, I uh, had genetic testing for, um, at that time, they were testing for a couple of mutations, CGFR or ELK, um, and I tested positive for the ELK mutation. Um, and then after that, I was referred to Dr. Gitlitz at Norris Cancer Center, and then two years later, here I am. The rest is history. So the uh, and I I was diagnosed with brain cancer twenty years ago, and I too was ignoring my symptoms. And I was a pianist whose left hand stopped working. So that those are pretty th- pretty important things to to go by. But it, it just goes to our invincibility genes that don't really kick in. And you know this. So so from start to finish, how long was it? From like it, so from the time I got uh, from the time I visited the urgent care center to the time I got my diagnosis, I'm thinking it was probably almost two weeks. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I was just in denial in the beginning because um, I had just run, uh, you know, like a major race uh, two weeks before my diagnosis. So I was still, like, going on about doing things, you know, quote-unquote living a normal life, and um, then that happened. So um, the nice thing about being on an you know, or having a genetic mutation is that there's so much that's available to me now. Um, you know, I started with a targeted oral chemotherapy drug um, by the name of Crisotinib or Salcori is the, the trade name. Um, and within maybe two months after starting treatment, it was amazing how fast, um, you know, I felt better and I was able to breathe better. And uh, I was back to, you know, not running marathons or anything, but I was back to running. So, um it's just technology and advancement, especially with the fact that, you know, the genome um, is now in, considered within the diagnosis, just quite amazing. Right. So let, let's pop up, uh, uh, before Jeff, like, and you had just gotten married. Like, these are not geriatric stories. This is like what, <laughs> it's it's hard enough being well when you're a young adult navigating that whole universe. Jeff, is a lot of this resounding with you? Are you nodding on the radio? Yes, absolutely. Very <laughs> So again, you're shaming my lethargy by being nothing but a stellar sports guy, um, but <laughs> but that's actually that's my new band name, Shaming Lethargy. There we go. That's my new band name. There you go. Um, so yeah, another peak peak condition, born into a swing team, and all of a sudden, stage four lung cancer out of the blue. Let, let's. I mean, it, it, you. It sounds like these stories are not completely dissimilar. Yeah, let, no, let me just say something. You know, I, I speak to, sorry, sorry, Jeff, I, I speak to everybody uh, that enrolls in the trial, especially the people on, on the website, and it's definitely a common thread, um, this, this kind of delay in diagnosis, whether it just be kind of the uh, disbelief and, and people ignoring their symptoms all the way down to doctors not even, even remotely thinking that these young people can have lung cancer. So it, it's definitely a common thread. All right, Jeff. The stage is yours. So, so my my story is a little bit more more recent. I'm coming up on six months since I was I was diagnosed, um, and similarly different um, symptoms, but similarly I I just looked past them. So about six months prior to that, about a year ago now, I just started having weird pains in my back. I didn't feel anything in my lungs. Actually, still to this day, I've never felt shortness of breath or anything related to lungs. I just started having pain, but as an athlete, it was just work through it, just get a massage. I went to a chiropractor. I did everything, and it just kept getting worse. 
ibuprofen wasn't working anymore, and the pain just started getting pretty bad to the point where my wife um, said, all right, we, we need to go in. And I was, I was lucky when I went in um, through my son team and, and just the support uh, crew that I have around me. A doctor kind of walked me through. He, didn't, he had no idea what it was but just knew that I wouldn't say that I was in pain and need to go to an emergency room until it was time to really check things out. Um, so then from there, this was early January, I was 39 at the time, um, the prognosis just kept going. So I got the x-ray and they saw a mass. So they did a needle biopsy and saw that it was cancer. Uh, so that was, that, basically that was that, that night. I went in on a Sunday night and I found out that I had lung cancer the next morning. From there, at the end of that week, I had a uh, brain scan, which came back negative, and then I had a full-body PET scan that revealed that it had moved to bone and uh, adrenal glands and my lymph nodes. Um, so it, it diagnosed with stage 4 cancer a week later after being diagnosed with lung cancer itself. Uh, from there, it just it started the process of finding finding what I what I could do and, and reaching out to people like Dr. Gitlitz. She was the first first oncologist that I spoke to that didn't hide from what the numbers were, but gave me hope. Um, and that really changed uh, my my outlook and my, my advocate's outlook of, of what we can do moving forward and then to be be put in touch with people like Bonnie and, and everything like that really changed, changed my world. Uh, from there, I ended up uh, going over to UCLA for a trial of immunotherapy. So I'm now on uh, nivolumab as every two weeks and then ipilimumab every six weeks there. And on that on that medication within, and I was in a lot of pain. I was on, um, I was taking about seven Norco a day until I was put on a patch and then I could back that down to like three Norco with the, with a, pat, a pain patch on. Uh, but it was a lot, a lot of pain. But within a week after starting the, the trial, my pain was, was decreased to the point where I didn't need Norco. And then about a month later, I'm off the pain patch and, and moving forward. My lung cancer, um, the mass itself is down about 60%. It's no longer in the adrenal glands or the, um, the lymph nodes. And then my bone is a little bit harder to tell, but that's stable as well. So I'm, I'm, back to able to, to move around and not on any pain meds and, and I just keep keep fighting and trying to stay healthy. So I, I want to turn the conversation over to the destigmatization of trials, the value trials, the stigma around trials and in the process for that. But before we get to that, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is, you know, if I tell you I have lung cancer and you ask me if I smoke, I will punch you in the head. <laughs> Let's talk about that stigma. Let's start with Sandy. Yeah, I mean, that's always the very first question that everybody asks, you know, when, when they find out that um, I have a lung cancer diagnosis, the first question is always, uh, did you smoke or, you know, how long did you smoke for? So people sometimes just autom- automatically assume and ask how long I've smoked for. <laughs> so um, I think that we're getting better at uh, getting rid of that stigma, but I still think that there's... Um, you know, a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of people that automatically assume that lung cancer uh, comes from smoking. Yeah, the same. I guess that's always always the first question that I get, no matter no matter where I am or who I'm talking to. And saying I didn't did not smoke, but that that question comes up every single time. Right, and and Barbara, I feel like in addition to being a, a medical oncologist and uh, working in this field, you're almost like part drugstore psychologist too this is a very stigmatized disease that brings with it a whole wealth of other mental health challenges that would be probably not the same if it were breast cancer yeah i mean there there have been studies done that that clearly show if you compare uh, people diagnosed with lung cancer versus other cancers uh, or even smoking-related diseases like heart disease and, and lung disease, there's uh, such feelings of, of stigma and guilt and embarrassment, and it's, it's just ridiculous. I mean, um, most of the people that I see these days either have never smoked or they, they smoked remotely when they were in college. All these young lung cancer patients, they've, they've, most of them have never smoked a day in their life. 
Um, and, you know, lung cancer is out there killing uh, more people than, than breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer combined uh, uh, every year. So we, we just got to move on from, from this ridiculous stigma. And, and I don't know why it's lung cancer that's singled out. I mean, far more people are getting heart disease and, and lung disease and other kinds of cancers that, that are smoking-related. Right. Um, so we, we really have to move on. Um, and and I, I tell that to people. I tell many people with newly diagnosed lung cancer that, you know, maybe the smoking had, had nothing to do with, with your lung cancer. Let's just kind of, you know, move on and, and look for the cure. And I think that's, um, you know, really a message also from Bonnie Adario and the Adario Lung Cancer Foundation where they really try to empower and educate uh, 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 patients. So what drew you to this? You're the primary investigator. That's a big job. What, what specifically drew you to this in particular? Well, primary investigator, it, you know, we, we developed the protocol. I have uh, co-investigators and uh, uh, a generous uh, other people like people, scientists from Foundation Medicine that, you know, have helped me out. And, you know, it, it's a lot of just uh, uh, unromantic things. It's, it's a lot of me sitting in my office and we have meetings once a week and reaching out to people and collecting their information and filling out forms. And uh, it, it's just a lot of, uh, you know, just kind of work that, uh, you know, it's not like I'm mixing test tubes or anything. It's, it's a lot of outreach and right. um, pep talks with Bonnie Adario and, you know, um, supporting the Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute and the, the foundation and, you know, getting people to come out to their walks and runs and, and support, support our research. So let's go back to Sandy and Jeff for a minute because trials, and again, we've done so many broadcasts and webinars and conference workshops on the stigma of trials, the barriers to get into trials, the process of enrolling and qualifying and then staying compliant through trials. I, I would love you to kind of sum up what this has been like for you to go through this process. And Jeff, and you're both in it right now, I believe. I am, yeah, I'm, in, I'm involved right, right now. And, and for me, um, it was overwhelming at first of hearing of everything. And uh, the stigma didn't hit us as, as much. My, my advocates, which is my sister and my wife as my main, main two advocates, we weren't, we weren't worried about a stigma or uh, anything having to do with the trial. We wanted the best, best thing possible for me. And whatever that was perceived to be for me in my situation, I had the same um, uh, genetic mutations tested, and I didn't have any actionable mutations uh, that I could go. So we went through, and, and luckily for me, it was uh, Dr. Gitlitz and Dr. Goldman, who I'm with, who's also involved in Young Lung, um, as well as, as two other uh, oncologists that have, have been supportive of me and helping me through this process all said the same thing. If I could get into this trial, that this was this was my first line. Uh, and it's not that's a kind of a new thing for first line treatment for immunotherapy, but it was a hundred percent all on the same page of if you get it accepted into this trial then go. So the answer for me was was very simple. I had four uh, brilliant people all very supportive of me and of this trial. So it was it was really a no brainer in terms of, of my individual circumstance. Yeah, and, and you know, just to to add what um, to what Jeff said, um, Dr. Gitlitz and the Adario Foundation, as well as clinicaltrials.gov online, have been like, you know, my key resources for finding information about the trials. Um, and it, you know, I also wasn't concerned with any stigmas or anything. A lot of the times, clinical trials give us access to medications that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. So, um, and the way I look at it, you know, at the end of the day, if you can participate in a trial and you can yourself benefit from the trial, um, you can also, you know, make a difference knowing that because you participate in the trial, this drug is going to be available hopefully once it gets approved by the FDA, if it does, for other patients um, like you. So I don't, you know, I, I just personally didn't find a downside to it. So let, let's talk about the results. This is relatively new this is incredibly innovative with a capital I. Everyone likes to throw the word innovative around with lowercase i's. Mm -hmm. um, so, Barbara, what's it been like? What, what can we talk about? Well, you know, once again, being able to speak to people from all over the world, that uh, all over the country, you know, I have to 
get my time zone straight, you know, and finding about finding out about their lung cancer journey, bringing the research to them, um, helping to guide them uh, uh, to therapies uh, has been, you know, just a, a real remarkable uh, experience. And as being a PI, I uh, am the one that uh, has the honor of presenting uh, data at, at, at big international um, uh, conferences. And so far, we've only really been allowed to uh, address the trial design. And in September at the World uh, Lung Cancer Conference in, in Denver, uh, part of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, I'll be presenting uh, our, our first look at our data for the first time. And we set a statistical bar. Um, there is something called the Lung Cancer Mutation Accordance Consortium where they looked at all lung cancer, particularly adenocarcinoma. So these can be any, any race, any gender, um, any age. And they looked at the, the frequency of these um, activating targetable mutations. And they it's a rate of about 30% or so. And we set a bar that we said we're going to you know, beat that um, that sounds positive, but you know we're going to right. uh, exceed that bar in this patient population, and and all I can say is we've more than doubled that in terms of looking at the cohort of uh, of of our young lung cancer uh, uh, people that have lung adenocarcinoma. The rate of these targetable targetable genomics is 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 more than double than what they found in a general population of lung cancer, and that's our. Uh, you know, truly remarkable and, you know, really begs the next question of um, why, you know, and that's a different study right. uh, that the Adaria Lung Cancer Medical Institute will, will hopefully uh, be able to take on uh, more of an epidemiology study of, of, you know, why is this happening? What's driving these mutations in these young people? Right. So all of that was fascinating, but the part that I found the most fascinating was that there was a <laughs> lung cancer conference in Denver where the air is thinner than Twiggy. <laughs> of all my words, okay, sure. Was <laughs> that was my takeaway. Insight. Like we'll uh, yes. you know present our, our our results. You know, we have a wonderful project manager. Her <laughs> yes. name is uh, Alicia Sable Hunt, who you know really ties uh, all of this uh, uh, together and, and helps me in, in the day to day running of of this trial and reaches out to these people. Um, and um, you know, it takes a, a, a big effort of, 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 of people, and it's just been you know really fascinating. And I look forward to having the honor of presenting uh, this this data. Yeah. So I, we have about five minutes left, and I really wanted to go back to the core of our mission, which is young adult cancer from a clinical and a mental health and lifestyle perspective. So we talk about you know misdiagnosis and, and navigating the process but sandy you had just gotten married jeff you were married i don't know if children were factored into this or fertility navigating insurance your careers you know, these, these are issues that are unique when you're not 80 or, or eight so right. i was hoping you would comment on uh what helped you get through the process and what resources were beneficial to you uh either financially economically socially whatnot so my biggest resource or my resources have been the Adara Lung Cancer Foundation and um, Dr. Gitlitz. I mean, we, you know, like I mentioned, um, my husband and I had just gotten married, and obviously we hadn't planned for children until, you know, several years from the marriage. Um, and we did talk to a couple of infertility specialists and, and so on and so forth. Um, that was definitely a big question. But after much research um, and you know, asking questions, um, we just decided that maybe we were, <laughs> we could adopt in the future or, or whatnot. Um, but just because of, you know, the hormonal changes in the body and whatnot, that could potentially affect um, right. any further spread of the cancer. So um, we opted not to do that. But for any other resources, you know, helping, for example, helping get uh, my chrysotinib, which is like $11,000 a month. Um, uh, the foundation was able to direct me to a um, to a program within Pfizer that would help me pay for my medication. Um, so having someone on my side like the Adira Lung Cancer Foundation has pretty much been, uh, you know, one of the greatest tools because I can always go to them and they're able to refer me places to get help. And uh, Jeff. So mine, the Adaria Lung Cancer Foundation has, has been great. Uh, but for me, uh, first I do do have a son, uh, and of, of this whole this whole situation uh, and, and journey, 
this, to talk with him was the, the hardest part of this whole thing for me. Um, but he, he has been great. And Swimming is a, a very tight-knit community. So my a lot of my support has come from my, my team here at Rose Bowl. Um, and obviously my family has been my, my rock. Um, but in the Swimming community, my, my team, they have created uh, Team Jeff. And Team Jeff has... has gotten donations to help cover costs of, of my my journey through through cancer and treatments and everything like that. Um, they put on clinics. There's 10 Olympians that came by the pool and, and ran a clinic for 200 of our summers uh, in support of, of me and my family. And that, that support, and since, let's say, the first month after being diagnosed, the only time that I truly get emotional is when I talk about how much support has been out there for me. Uh, so that is that has been incredible and something that I hope everybody can realize. I was not one, uh, nor was my wife, that would accept help very freely. We were uh, very proud people, I guess. Not to an extreme, but proud and, and knew that we could handle things. As, as both athletes and both national team athletes, we like to handle things ourselves. But this isn't something that you can handle yourself in my mind. You reach out to whoever and everybody that can support you uh, and take advantage of that support that, that people that really want to love love and, and care for you and whatever they can do. And you need to guide them in that. But that's something that I've learned along the way and, and truly benefited and, and feel feel blessed. And, and there's certain parts of this journey that you learn things that you would never otherwise learn. I would never know how much I know about uh, the support that I have in this, this world and on this team uh, without this. And it's, it's crazy to say sometimes, but it's been a blessing that way to learn how, learn how I can um, have that support from so many different people and so many different people across the nation that are following my journey on caring bridge. And we, we, I, we like to joke, even though it's clearly not a joke that it's the club you didn't want to belong to, but once you hear your family, right. Absolutely. So, uh, Barbara, I got about a minute left. Um, clearly, this conversation could go on for weeks. It has opened up the floodgates of science and research and outcomes and data and patient DNA and sequencing and costs and payers and it's it's a it's crazy, but it's a good problem to have because it didn't exist a few years ago. Where do you, you know, again briefly, where, where do you see this the genomic future? Um, moving and, and through this pioneering research you're doing? Well, I mean, you know, we're finding smaller and smaller um, niches of, of people with lung cancer that, that have to have their own uh, research and, and own treatment and their own treatment. And, and I just see uh, that happening, even if it's for like 1% or 2% of people uh, with lung cancer. And we just have to describe uh, these groups of people. Lung cancer, again, is not one big uh, uh, illness and, you know, direct the treatment and, and the research on, on, on that. And maybe this um, research will lead to a better understanding of lung cancer in general, especially if we, you know, describe such a high proportion of people with a driver mutation, and then we can, you know, start answering the whys and then and the and the what's, you know, why is this happening? You know, what has what has initiated this mutation? Um, so it, it just has really profound uh, uh, implications. I, I feel, and I hope that we can contribute. Well said, Sandy. Are you hiking again? Yeah, I mean, I'm not fine on you know, trekking up Everest anytime soon, but, yeah, I'm still hiking. That's good. Uh, Jeff, have you been back in the pool? I have, I have been back in the pool. I was not swimming much before. I've been back in the pool, so I've swung about five or six days a week, uh, and it's like it's been like going home, so it's been mm-hmm. a, a mental peace of mind for me as well. We love, uh, we love uh, great stories like this. Uh, we wanted to thank our guests uh, Dr. Barbara Gitlitz, medical oncologist at USC, principal investigator of the genomics of young adult lung cancer uh, of the Bonnie J. Dario Lung Cancer Medical Institute and young adult lung cancer survivors, uh, Sandy Hirigi and Jeff Julian. Thank you so much for being a part of Stupid Lung Cancer Part 2. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Thanks. bye. Uh. We did it. We did a two-parter. It went rather well. It's fascinating. I mean, again, just even yesterday, the fact that we're having this talk after we heard all of yesterday, everyone in that audience at the uh, idea exchange 
is part of this institution of genomics and not body parts. And they're all chasing molecules, like they kept using that word molecule over and over again. The molecule that identifies the gene that changes this. It's finally, after God knows how many years, there's finally science that matters in cancer. So It's pretty insane. It's pretty insane. All right. With that said, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 351st episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity. Comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. I'd like to thank our guests, Katie Brown from Longevity and Dr. Barbara Gitlet, Sandy Harigi, and Jeff Julian from the Bonnie J. Dario Lung Cancer Research Institute. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck. And on behalf of myself and Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, Sean Shapiro, Noel Wimmer, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next broadcast of the Stupid Cancer Show. Later, folks.